Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And we are here for the podcast, Downtown's 152nd episode. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. a couple of good conversations for you this week on the program. In the second half, we talk with Eddie Muller. He is the uh, Noarchaeologist, <laughs> the host of Noir Alley on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. He has written extensively about film noir, knows the genre about as well as anybody, and a really fun conversation with him about uh, some of the greats of film noir in history. But we get things underway by talking with a couple of music makers who have been getting it done for more than 50 years now, from their days as members of the Fifth Dimension, scoring big with hits like Up, Up and Away, Aquarius, One Less Bell to Answer, Last Night, and so many more, on to success as a duo with a number one song and Grammy Award winner, You Don't Have to Be a Star to Be in My Show. On top of all that, they've been married for more than 50 years as well, and they're about to release their first new album in more than three uh, decades, entitled Blackbird, the songs of Lennon and McCartney. Here's our conversation with the wonderful Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Rich. How are you doing? Doing very well and and loving what I've heard so far from the new album. I'll, I'll ask the question I'm sure you've been asked a million times. Why Blackbird and why now? Well, this seems like a good time to to be uh, singing a song like Blackbird because, you know, actually, when that song was written by uh, Lennon and McCartney, they wrote it as a civil rights anthem. And so many people didn't realize that, but but the timeliness of it is just so right on when we look at what's happening today and in our country and all around us. Well, and the video that you've released is it's very simple, but so powerful. Mm. Yes, yes, it is. It's, it makes a statement, and and I think the statement should be made, especially uh, at such a time as this. Yes. You know? you know, we're talking about how the blackbird leaves the nest and uh, as, it's, as the bird is growing up. And when you leave the nest, the, the mother doesn't always know if the bird's going to come back. And we've seen so many of those sad moments happen in our lives today. And it's just a powerful statement to remind people that that we're all living together, that we hurt together, and we pray together, and we we love together. And so that's it. we just want everyone to remember that we are together. Well, it's a wonderful message and, and an incredible version of Blackbird. That, that Everything you. Uh, that you do together is so good. I love the version of Silly Love Songs, and to me that, that does a couple of things. It, it not only shows the range of Lennon McCartney as writers, but it shows your range as singers. Well, you know, Silly Love Songs was a, it's, it's a funny story behind that song. You know, years ago, uh, when we were with, uh, with, with, when we had our first album out, we had our "You Don't Have to Be a Star." Well, on the charts, we went to number one, and uh, it, there was somebody on our tail. <laughs> and uh, come to find out, it was it was uh, Paul McCartney <laughs> and Wings that, and Wings, right. and they and they, and the song was "Silly Love Song," and knocked us right out of the number one spot of, of, of the charts. So uh, th- this is not payback. 
this is just this is just something that needed to be sung. It needed to be sung during this time because we do need love, and love is not silly. And a lot of people who've heard that song have said, "Oh my God, do we need a song celebrating love like that today?" Yeah. Well, and I love the songs that uh, you've chosen for the album uh, yesterday. Help, Ticket to Ride, uh, John Lennon's Just Like Starting Over. And uh, t- talk, if you can, about uh, how much of a help in putting this all together you got from uh, young producer Nick Mendoza. Oh, quite a bit of help. Quite a bit of help. Uh, Nick, uh, you know, we found out that Nick's uh, parents introduced him to us years ago, introduced him to the Fifth Dimension Music. And uh, he fell in love with it, but little did he know that he would end up meeting us one day through our management company. And, uh, and and he would be producing, and uh, so he was the one who came up with thinking about hey let's 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 try Blackbird, uh, uh, because we had been doing uh, a, a Beatles medley in our live show, and uh, Blackbird was one of the songs that we were doing, and it, it, when it, it just all came together, people were loving the the uh, the, the arrangements that we had on the uh, the Beatles medley in our show. We were delighted that Rick was was such a fan because uh, he's so young. You mean uh, Nick? No, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. Nick was such a fan, and uh, and we said, "You really want to go into the studio with us?" And he said, "I would love it." And we started talking about songs that would work, and we started talking about more Beatles songs. And yeah, and uh, you know, Billy and I have found that. The, that those songs, there's so many interesting ways of, of, of reviving those songs. And it just ended up seeming like a, seeming like a great idea. Yeah. Well, the Beatles songs, they lend themselves to being able to interpret them different ways. And uh, that, that's exactly what we tried to do. We're talking with Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. about their new album, Blackbird. But I want, if we can, go back uh, to the very beginning of your partnership. And Marilyn, you were in a group called The Hi-Fis with Lamont McLemore. Is that right? That's right. That's right. We we actually went out on tour with Ray Charles, the the genius of Ray Charles. <laughs> he was managing the group, and uh, we went out on the road with him, and, and we're out with him for a little while, came back home. That group broke up. And then the next group that came together ended up being the Fifth Dimension. Mm-hmm. Billy had come out from, from St. Louis to Los Angeles looking for a record deal with Motown. And Lamont knew the people at the Motown offices. So he said, well, you introduce me to them and, and uh, I'll convince them that they want me. <laughs> <laughs> and they did, but they put me on a waiting list. <laughs> so I was waiting anyway. <laughs> So meanwhile, that's when we started the started the group, and the, the group was called the Versatiles at first, and then 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 it was renamed the Fifth Dimension. And you already had Ron Townsend and Florence Larue on board. Yes. Well, Florence was the last one to come on board. We were looking for another. We knew that we liked the idea of two women and three men's voices together because it, it gave you so many possibilities for harmonics and interesting chords, and mm-hmm. uh, but we wanted a strong woman's voice and uh so florence came in and and sang and we said oh yeah that's the voice that's the voice (laughs) we're looking for well the song that really you rode to the top of the charts are written by a great friend of our show uh the wonderful jimmy webb up up and away just went to the stratosphere higher than a balloon and and coming at a really turbulent time in american history that was a song that the people embraced so much 
Oh, yeah. It yeah. really was. It, it was, a, a, again, it was another song that made people happy. That's you know? right. It, by the way, Jimmy is, is a, a very good friend of ours, too. You know, we're in touch with him uh, quite a bit. And uh, uh, little did we know that that song was going to be a hit because when Jimmy first played it for us, uh, we all looked at each other and thought, well, this song would never be a hit because it was just too pretty. <laughs> you know, it was a beautiful song, but people just fell in love with it and made them happy. Yeah. And a, a whole boatload of Grammy Awards for that. And then on to even more success. Uh, 1969, what a remarkable year. Two number one songs. Oh, and you got married that year as well. Oh, oh right. Yeah. <laughs> but but yes, it took that a while. was the song that I, I, I sang that song. And, and when I finished in the studio, Billy came out into the studio and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, Marilyn, when I hear you sing that song, I, I realize that we could have a life together. You know, Rich, I got a bridge I want to sell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, well, it was sort of like that. But, but Billy always tells them that I came and begged him, you know, so I, I got in the first punch. <laughs> You you were friends. You weren't uh, you weren't thinking about uh, being romantically involved right away. That took some time. That's right. Not at all. We yeah. we, we met each other, and uh, well, our friendship started because of our music. And uh, we we just used to sit around and talk music all the time. And and uh, even when we go to parties, we would sit up and sit on the couch. Everybody be up dancing and having a good time, and and we'd be sitting there talking about music and talking about our lives. And that's where, that's where our relationship started. Yeah, and that's how our friendship came together. Now, there's a great story in your book about uh, how you came to record a song that became another number one for you from the Broadway show Hair. And it all started, Billy, as I remember, with you, you losing your wallet in the middle of New York City. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, 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 uh, I went out shopping in, in, in New York, in, in Manhattan, and uh, came back in a cab. And for some reason, I lost my wallet and it fell in the cab. So, uh, some guy got in behind it and, and he, he found it. He called, called me in my room. But first of all, I told Marilyn when I got upstairs in the hotel, I said, baby, I lost my wallet. And Marilyn said, oh, Lord, you're in New York. you ain't going to never find that wallet. You're in New York, man. I said, well, okay, okay. Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to forget that. I start thinking about calling the unions and, and canceling my cards and stuff. But I got a call, and the guy said, is this Billy Davis Jr.? I said, yes, it is. He said, well, I got your wallet. I said, what? Well, hold on. <laughs> I, I said, I'll be right over. I got that. So I went over to his house. I offered him some money. He said, no, no, no. He wouldn't take no money. So uh, I offered him to come and see the Fifth Dimension. We were we were performing at uh, a, a room at, at the Royal Box, called the Royal Box at the Americana Hotel. And uh, so him and his wife, they came to the show. I invited them to the show. And uh, after the show, they came back and said, you know, uh, Billy, the show was great. We had loved you guys. He said, but since you were so nice, we'd like to invite you guys to our show. And we said, what show is that? He was one of the producers of Hair. <laughs> we had been trying to see Hair. We, nobody could get in to see Hair. Nobody. You couldn't find a ticket. You couldn't buy a ticket. And now all of a sudden we got tickets. The lines were long because everybody was trying to get in, you know, because that's the first time that anybody was getting naked on stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody wanted to see that, you know. So so we got in and we got a chance to see the show. show. And there was a young kid by the name of Ronnie Dyson. 
And he was belting out this beautiful song called Aquarius. Yes. And all of us fell in love with that song right away. And uh, so we, 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 we called our producer. Yeah. Uh, pardon me for interrupting, but no, no, let me get on because it was so exciting. Um, we called our producer, Bones Harrell, and we said, Bones, Bones, we've heard our next hit, our next number one record. And so we told him about it. And he said, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> he said, but let me think about it. He said, people have tried to record it already. Then he came back to us and he said, I've got an idea. And he was the one who came up with the idea of taking Aquarius and putting it together with Let the Sunshine In. Mm -hmm. And then when we were in the studio recording it, then uh, we were singing, let the sunshine, let the sunshine in. And so then he said, okay, Billy, now take it to church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you, then Billy you did, did some of his gospel licks and that was, that was all she wrote. <laughs> Well, that was that was to me what made it such an incredibly powerful song that you you couldn't help but sing along and move your feet and put your hands together. Oh yeah, yes. you know it's so funny that song still today when we do it in our show, people just jump up and start singing and clapping. It, it, it's amazing yes. about that song. And they yeah. they come down to the front of the stage they, yeah. and they're dancing. You know, a lot of these people, of course, they're from our generation. Yeah, and they come down there and they're reliving their youth. And it is such and it's, a beautiful, it's, it's thing, beautiful to see. thing to yeah. see. Yeah. yeah. But they keep their clothes on, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we oh, hope yeah. so. Yeah. <laughs> at, at this age, they have to. <laughs> uh, in 1970, uh, you released a song that became a, another big hit for the Fifth Dimension. And Marilyn, for my money, it's one of the great vocals in all of pop music history. One less bell to answer. Oh, uh, yes. thank you, yes. Bert Backrack and Hal David. Two of the finest, some of the finest songwriters of our generation, or anybody's generation. Yes, yes. Oh yeah, that uh, I always loved Torch songs, and uh, Bones Bones Howe brought that song to me and said, um, "I'd li I'd like for you to do this song." And I listened to it and I said, "Oh, it's about heartbreak. I love heartbreak songs." <laughs> so um, I started rehearsing it, and and Billy and I worked on it together, and he gave me a couple of ideas of how to approach it, and. Um, the song became a hit for us. Yeah, yeah. The rest is history. <laughs> now, I was such a big fan of your music, but but growing up in that time period, it was always great to see on television, usually the Ed Sullivan Show. But I have to ask, uh, who who did your wardrobes? Who put together those costumes for the the wonderful TV appearances? There was a wonderful young um, designer by the name of Boyd Clopton. He was with us for for a number of years. He's no he's no longer with us now. Yeah. But uh, he came up with these ideas. He saw we had Lamont Matlamore, who was a photographer in the group, uh, also came up with an idea of maybe we should try uh, taking a, a color theme like black and white. On this particular uh -huh. night, we did a black and white color theme, and everybody picked something different, different. that yeah. worked for their personalities, and we were performing. And Boyd Clopton was in the audience that night and he saw it. And afterwards he came back and he was introduced to us by a friend. And he said, I see what you guys are after. And I think it's a great idea. He said, take your own personalities and take a theme and come up with a new look. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did for the group. Well, you had tremendous success with the fifth dimension. And then in, in the mid seventies, uh, you decided to go your own way, released uh, your first album and immediately continued the great success you've had before uh, this time reaching number one yet again with the song we talked about earlier, but what a great song from 76. You don't have to be a star to be in my show. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, that that was a that was a big one for us, and we were surprised that uh, that that something would happen so soon for us because but after we left the group, we didn't know what was going to happen, and uh, you know one of the great things about that that particular album was. It, it, the name of the album was I Hope We Get to Love in Time. And uh, I remember we started singing I Hope We Get to Love in Time on a lot of shows. And uh, we thought that that was going to be a big record, but it, but it, but it didn't. And uh, you don't have to be. In fact, we, we, we did that on the Dolly Parton show years ago. Yes, yeah. we did. And, uh, and, uh, but, but it wasn't that, that song. It was uh, You Don't Have to Be a Star was the one that really took off. And that also led to you having your own summer replacement series on television. Yes, it did. I, and that was that was an interesting experience because Billy and I, it was it was kind of an exciting idea to do something on television. And uh, we were we did six episodes. Mm -hmm. They were trying different ideas to see what new concept they wanted to try try in the fall. It was CBS at the time, and uh, we did six shows. And just and found out that it was fun, but we really preferred performing live. That is where we uh, derive our greatest joy. Although you had great success as a host of Solid Gold for many years. Yeah. <laughs> and I really enjoyed that, too. It was a lot of fun. I thought, I don't know if I want to go back and do television. But you know what? That was a great time because uh, the, the music was new. And the first year I was with, I was uh, with, well, let's see, the first year was Dionne Warwick and, mm. um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, the country singer who had all the hits with, um, with, with Jimmy. Uh, Glenn uh, Glenn Campbell. Campbell. Thank yeah. you. I had one of those senior moments. Sorry. Folks. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so uh, Dion and Glenn did it the first year, and then the second year, Andy Gibb and I did it. And then uh, I stayed with the show for five years. It was a lot of fun, and Billy came on the show, and we sang oh, yeah. duets together, yeah. and yeah. it was it was a good time. It was, it was yeah. a different experience for you, too. Yes, it you was. Know, you got a chance to, to, to interview and sing together with different artists, yeah. and I thought it was nice. Yeah. Well, thank you, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and you both did a lot of acting through the years as well. Was that was that a different than than performing live and doing your music to stretch that other side of your artistic ability? Well, you know, I always thought I wanted to be an actress, and I was trying to decide between music and acting. And uh, we had a chance to do a, 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 an appearance on on um, a show called It Takes a Thief, Robert mm -hmm. Wagner's, oh, yeah. one of his major hits. Mm -hmm. And uh, the group w uh, appeared on there, and um, I had a, a role with him where we had a, a relationship that started to develop. Mm -hmm. And uh, in one of those scenes, the group was in the studio, and we sang One Less Bell to Answer on mm -hmm. that, as well as Puppet as Man. As well as Puppet yeah. Man, right, right, right. And what I discovered, Rich, was that as much as I enjoyed the acting part, I really missed the music. So, but you know, we we still we still pursued uh, we still pursued uh, uh, a lot of the acting because we did Days of Our Lives. You remember? Oh, that's true. Days We're still doing that. <laughs> and and uh, you know, and then I, I got I ended up getting on Days of Our Lives, and yeah. and and you know, it's all right to do that because it's a challenge yeah. you know and you decide that hey you know i can do this stuff you know and and and, and uh, so we did a lot of that and we did a lot of uh, we did those, theater 
theater. Right. Billy yep. did Billy did a production called Blues in the Night. Yeah. And uh, that was that was really good. Yeah. You at, did a at, wonderful at the old Globe Theater. Maryland Maryland yeah. didn't like it because I I was performing with four was it, three, three other women. Three other women. Too many women in the show. Three women, too many women. And, and myself. That was it. <laughs> he seemed like he was having too much fun. Yeah, right. But it was blues in the night. <laughs> Well, it's always been about the music first and foremost for you professionally. Oh, yeah. What what led you to bring it back around, back into the studio to make this wonderful new album? Well, you know, we we've done some some uh, productions, uh, nothing nearly as big as uh, as this project. Uh, being with EE One, the, the the wonderful label that Kathy Ireland uh, has mm -hmm. put together as one of her business projects, and it's put. Put together with BMG, yeah. one of the major, major radio, uh, record, record companies, companies from right. uh, Germany. Yeah. And uh, when when they talked to them about the concept and about doing this this Beatles production and uh, doing it in a different and new way, and the Beatles music hadn't really been heard for a while. I mean, you never stop hearing Beatles music, no, but no. but it wasn't as <clears throat> You were, we weren't hearing it as often, and they heard some of the uh, new approaches that we were doing with the music. Um, they liked it. They liked it a lot, and they said, we're interested in this project. And we were like, oh, at this stage in our lives, at, at this age, mm -hmm. we're just, we're absolutely delighted. Well, you sound great on the album. You both look amazing as well. I guess I guess 50 plus years of being in love does that. What's what's the secret to that? How have you been able to to maintain not just a marriage but a friendship for for more than 50 years? Well, you know, Rich, you you wouldn't do nothing to hurt your best friend. <laughs> so, that that's basically what it is. I mean, we started our, our relationship started out as friends. And uh, we've been friends ever since. I mean, in fact, our friendship has gotten even stronger. Yeah. We, we, we're together all day, every day. And we don't know what to do unless we are together. So, and, and of course, a, we share our faith together, yes, too, which yes, I think do. is very important, yes. especially for relationships. Yeah, you know? that's right. Well, it's so wonderful to talk to you. I've enjoyed your music, well, since the first time. I heard Up, Up, and Away, and uh, we're so appreciative of you making time for us this afternoon and can't wait to hear the entire album, Blackbird, Lennon McCartney Icons, when it comes out April 30th. Marilyn McCoo, Billy Davis Jr., thank you so much. We wish you continued success and good health. Well, thank you, Rich. Thanks for having us. Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. talking with us about their career, their marriage, and their brand-new album, Blackbird. We'll take a little break for this message from Cross Insurance and come on back and talk film noir with TCM's Eddie Muller on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
tonight there of Marilyn Baku, Billy Davis Jr. Title cut from their new album, Blackbird. Up next on Downtown the Podcast, we welcome in uh, the host of Noir Alley on TCM, Turner Classic Movies. He's the author of a number of books, a film noir expert. We had so much fun talking recently with Eddie Muller. How did you become a noirchaeologist? <laughs> Uh, well, what, I, I'll tell you, this is a funny story. Once upon a time, I got my, I'm at a, uh, entree to the publishing business by writing a book about the history of adults only movies. And when I was done with that, I said, now I want to write a book about movies. I actually like watching. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wrote a book about film noir and that was back at the early part of the century. And, uh, it's just taken off from there. And you've talked about this on TCM. Your father was a boxing writer, and that's one of the things that drew you into this world. That is correct, Rich, yeah. I, I, I sometimes say that watching the old film noir movies, is, uh, I feel like I'm watching my dad's home movies or something when I watch the setup or Body and Soul, because that really was his world. I kind of missed it. I was born somewhat late in his life, and so I, there's no question that that's why I'm attracted to the films, I think. It's a way of, like, uh, exploring my dad's world safely. And you uh, base the character of Billy Nichols in your book, The Distance, on your father. Absolutely. Uh, it's fictionalized, mind you. Uh, but the character, absolutely, very much modeled on my father. So what was the first film noir that you saw when you could appreciate what the genre was? Hmm. Well, you know, I suppose it's possible to appreciate the genre, even if you don't know all the terms and the nomenclature. Things just resonate with people, right? I mean, some people respond immediately to comedies or musicals or something. But for me, it was the noir. And I guess it was a, a movie called Thieves Highway. Mm -hmm. It was made uh, in 1949, but set in San Francisco. And so that, uh, it fascinated me because I didn't recognize that place in the movie because all of it was gone by the time I saw the movie in like the late 60s, early 70s. And, and that's another part of the fascination for me is how movies, uh, you know, capture the past and then it disappears, but it's still there in the films. And that's very important to me. I want to talk about a few films and some of my favorites and one that uh, every time it's on TCM, I have to be there watching. Uh, Gun Crazy is about as good as it gets when it comes to film noir. Well, I uh, appreciated that film enough that I wrote, as you as you mentioned at the top, I wrote an entire book about the creation of that film and uh, and its influence on other movies at the time. What, what, what do you get out of it, Rich? What what? Why do you find it so special? Well, I love the characters uh, and the way they're portrayed. I love the I'm a, I'm a school teacher in my full time job, so I can appreciate uh, the the struggles that uh, young Bart goes through uh, early on right. along the way, and and to see uh, his character arc. But it's just uh, the cinematography is incredible. The pace of the film is so great. Yeah. It's just in addition to the story, it's just a beautiful movie. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I had the great good fortune of uh, becoming friends with Peggy Cummins, who plays uh, Laurie Starr, Annie Laurie Starr, the gunslinging gal in that movie. And, and she was just a, a total delight. That was one of the joys of my life is that we became very good friends. And, and, of course, I love the fact that uh, Young, well, he wasn't even Russ yet. He was still Rusty Tamblin is in it. 
Right, right. He plays young young Bart when he breaks the window of the hardware store to steal that that Colt revolver. Yeah, <laughs> it's a pretty great movie. I have to agree with you. One of the the films uh, that really got me hooked uh, on on film noir, and I also love him as an actor and everything he does, uh, is Richard Widmark and Pick Up on South Street. Oh yeah, he. You know, I I had the great good fortune again to uh, to participate in a biography uh, of Widmark that was done, oh my gosh, maybe 15 years ago on the Arts and Entertainment Network, and I specifically spoke about his work in film noir, and Widmark, of course, was still alive then, and uh, I got a very nice little note uh, that he sent to the producer saying, who is this guy that knows all about those films? (laughs) Uh, and obviously, particularly pick up on South Street, but also Night in the City and uh, Roadhouse and Kiss of Death. He, yeah, he was a giant uh, in this genre. Are there certain elements that go into making the perfect film noir? Well, that's a good question. And, you know, one of the things that uh, keeps this genre, if it even is a genre, one of the things that keeps it alive is that everybody likes to debate about what makes noir noir. And I don't, I don't really think there's any other type of film where people have this argument. I mean, a musical's a musical, a western's a western, a comedy's a comedy. But when people watch noir, they, they tend to argue over it, <laughs> I hope, in a, in a fun and respectful way. But, uh, I, I mean, I get this all the time. I, I think probably more than anything else I am asked by people, they, they throw a title at me and say, is that noir or isn't it noir? And uh, the fact that you can discuss this and, and have different criteria uh, is, is pretty interesting. You know, there are those people who think if there's no femme fatale in the film, oh, then it's not noir. You know, if, it, if it's not in the, you know, if it's in color, it can't possibly be a film noir. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to all of these things, but um, I, I get where people are coming from when they, uh, they argue the criterion. We're talking with Eddie Muller here on Downtown. Well, one film that few could argue about uh, whether or not it's a film noir is Out of the Past, which is just, it stuns me every time I see it. And one of the things that I'm constantly impressed with is to realize how young Jane Greer was when she made that film. 22 years old. They were all young. Uh, Robert Mitchum was the old man at 29 in the cast. And Kirk Douglas was 26 and Jane Greer was 22. Uh, people were different then. You know, I, I, I'm always startled by that. Uh, there was something about the fact that people lived lives before they got to Hollywood. And they, they looked a little more worldly and a bit uh, more experienced, shall we say, <laughs> uh, than, than some actors you see today. Uh, but Out of the Past is definitive film noir. When people ask me, you know, I don't really understand what it is. Would you recommend a film that will kind of crystallize it for me? It's either Double Indemnity or Out of the Past are the two that I always mention. Well, and, and Double Indemnity certainly up there. Uh, if, if not my number one, uh, then perhaps 1A. Uh, it's, again, such a brilliant <laughs> cast. And, and uh, of everybody in that film who is so good, uh, to me the performance that sticks with me is Edward G. Robinson. I, I knew you were going to say that because it's like the perfect supporting role. One of the best supporting roles ever in movies, I think, you know, is Barton Keyes, the, the uh, insurance man. 
and the stories about his uh, how great he was on that film are kind of legendary. You know, you know that scene where he runs through the empirical tables explaining to his <laughs> protege Walter about all the different ways people die. And that was one take. He did that oh, one take wow. and uh, just nailed it. And, you know, Billy Wilder was so thrilled. It's like this, this man is a genius. And it was such a discovery for me when I, I first saw this film, I think uh, probably in my 20s, because I, I grew up watching Fred McMurray on My Three Sons and had no idea when I was nine and 10 years old about what he had done before he became Steve Douglas. Right, right, exactly. And the, the fact that he had actually made pictures with uh, Barbara Stanwyck prior to Double Indemnity. So it was uh, it was interesting that they were teamed in that movie. And Stanwyck did not really want to do the film initially. And, uh, you know, she, she was extremely popular at the time. I, she was the highest paid woman in America at the time she made that movie. And re she really thought that playing a murderess was going to uh, backfire on her and her career and and wilder just challenged her and said oh i i'm sorry i i thought you were an actress <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, talked about your love of, of humphrey bogart is he the quintessential film noir actor i don't see how anybody can deny that i mean uh, other people obviously can have their personal favorites but i really do believe that as a performer bogart was essential to the creation of this whole, I'm going to call it the noir ethos, but it was what he projected as an anti-hero. You know, starting, he really kind of started doing this with High Sierra. He had made a lot of pictures in the 1930s at Warner Brothers where he was the second banana. He was like in the shadow of Cagney and Robinson and, and even George Raft. Um, but when he made High Sierra, he became sort of a, outlawish leading man and an anti-hero and then that was solidified with the Maltese Falcon and then legend he became a legend with Casablanca uh, but he had this incredible ability to uh, project sort of a, a romantic idealism and a really hard cynicism at the same time and I think that was the essence of his screen persona and why he was the perfect actor for film noir. And often that cynicism uh, is is displayed to us through humor. And to me, that's always one of the, the great components of a very good film noir is the, the humor that is often subtle but always present. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rich, because that's, that's very true. I think people, um, you know, the initial wave of, of uh, recognition that these films got decades and decades ago focused on how they represented like the dark side of Hollywood and the dark side of American culture. But over time, as we've gotten more and more corrupt in the culture, <laughs> I think that uh, people now watch these films and it's almost like they're comfort food in a way. And the language and the style, the verbal style, uh, is something that people just relish. Uh, and you're absolutely right. There's a wit and a and a uh, elan to the to the language in these films that that just makes them so incredibly enjoyable. So, if Bogart is the quintessential leading man, who is his female counterpart? Well, 
that you're going to get lots of arguments over this <laughs> um, because the women who the big names dabbled in noir, like Rita Hayworth did Gilda and Lady from Shanghai and Ava Gardner did The Killers. And, uh, but I, I have to say it's Barbara Stanwyck, not just because of Double Indemnity, but she did a slew of these movies in the 1940s. No Man of Her Own and Sorry Wrong Number and The Strange Love of Martha Ivers. As a leading lady, I think it's, it's hard to go against Barbara Stanwyck, who I happen to think is the greatest actress in the history of motion pictures. Well, coming up this Saturday night, uh, you've got another one of my favorites on. And, and what an abundance of riches when you look at the cast and crew uh, of The Third Man, from, from Orson Welles to maybe my favorite character actor of the time period, Joseph Cotton, uh, to the direction of Carol Reed, the screenplay from Graham Greene. So much talent here. And the fabulous cinematography of Robert Krasker. You can't. Yes. I mean, Carol Reed gets all the credit because uh, he's the director, but uh, the the lone Oscar that was won by that film was for its cinematography by the by the great Robert Krasker. But you're right. I think it it could be argued that The Third Man comes as close to being a perfect film as as any film you could cite. I think. Yeah, and then add into it uh, the uh, the wonderful music that was so unusual and unique that, well, went on to, to become a, a huge hit on the charts uh, from Anton Karras. Yes, uh, something that I talk about at some length uh, in my outro this coming weekend. I, I learned some very interesting things about Anton Karras and, and his life after The Third Man that I'm going to be sharing uh, with people this weekend. Uh, you know, the other thing that I, I get such a kick out of doing this show is, you know, I've been doing this for quite a while now. <laughs> it's been over 20 years where I've been kind of like this noir expert and doing film festivals and writing books and everything. But I get such a thrill now because um, there's a social media aspect to this where you can see people commenting in real time about the films and things. And it it pleases me so much to hear people say, this is the first time I'm ever seeing this movie. And and I just love that. The fact that, you know, we're sort of passing the baton to a younger generation. Uh, and, you know, you hear a lot in the media about, oh, these kids say they don't appreciate old movies and stuff. And I got to say that that is simply not true because I do festivals live and the auditoriums are filled with young people who really respond to this. And doing the show on TCM, I, I get the exact same feedback. It, it's across the board, you know. Um, younger people will write to me and say, this is a great way for me to connect with my you, father, mother, grandmother, whatever, because those people saw these movies when they first came out, and then they have the fun of sharing their memory of the films with their, their children or grandchildren, whatever when they see the movies on TCM, and I, I, I really love that. Well, and, and it's also a great lesson in the art of filmmaking, too. And you mentioned uh, Robert Krasker, and, and his techniques are so uh, unique in The Third Man. Can you explain uh, what's called the, the Dutch angle technique? Well, the Dutch angle or a canted angle is just where you, uh, visually you're displaying some unease in the environment by putting the camera at a tilted angle that's very unnatural. So you're not seeing things straight on at eye level. It's, it's askew. 
you know, very much the antithesis of a filmmaker like Howard Hawks, who always put the camera exactly at like the average person's height at eye level and shot everything straight and static. Uh, he didn't want people to notice the camera. Carol Reed's technique in The Third Man is exactly the opposite, very much like Orson Welles' technique was when he was directing. A lot of, you know, obviously I think Welles inspired a lot of what Carol Reed does in The Third Man. But, uh, you know, there's there's no right way to make a movie, right? I also love uh, what you and your TCM colleagues have been doing uh, with Reframed. That is such a wonderful, uh, different way of looking at classic films. Well, I think it's an essential Thing that had to happen um, because I, I'm mentioning that we want younger people to continue to find these films relevant. And as the culture changes, I don't want the movies to get lost because people say, well, that's no longer relevant or we're embarrassed by something in this movie. So it's not worth watching anymore. I, I very much am opposed to that. And I want the movies to stay vital and for people to be able to see them. But I totally understand, like, why some people would be rubbed the wrong way by what are considered problematic elements in these films. So I think uh, what we're doing on TCM is the right way to approach it. Plus, it's, it's great fun to have these conversations with my colleagues. And it's, you know, it's no different than what we'd be doing if we were sitting around watching movies, we're just sharing that with people. Uh, also, very exciting news about your book, Dark City, which is coming out in a new revised and expanded edition. Uh, I am sitting here talking to you right now, Rich, at my computer looking at the final proofs of the book on a big monitor, and I am thrilled to pieces about it. It, it really looks beautiful. Well, we can't wait for that. That, to... was, that, was, that was the book that started it all for me. When that book came out, I was invited uh, by the American Cinematheque in Hollywood to program a, a film festival based on that book. And, and that festival led to my doing this all over the United States and then being invited to do it overseas. And then eventually, you know, TCM said, why don't you just do it on the network? I love it. Well, you can visit Eddie's website at eddiemuller.com and, of course, catch his work on TCM Noir Alley Saturday night and then again on Sunday morning, uh, to me, and as a as a film fan and a sports fan, uh, when you're there, it's like uh, when Bob Costas would be there for a big game. I know it's going to be a great movie because Eddie Muller is there to tell us all about it. To really enjoy your work, and uh, thanks so much for being with us today, Eddie. Oh, that's very kind of you, Rich. I appreciate it very much. It, it was really nice talking to you. Uh, Eddie Muller telling us all we need to know about film noir. That's my that's my weakness, Carrie. You know, it's my comfort food is to turn on TCM and watch some of these great... Uh, I love I love old movies, mm -hmm. I love black and white movies, but I especially love the film noir genre. There's a lot to love about it. it. It's not one of those ones that I think of, but man, anytime I happen to stumble across one, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is great. Yeah, so many good people, uh, so many great actors and directors, and uh, boy, Eddie Muller knows it inside and out. Our thanks to Eddie, and thanks to Marilyn McCoo and Billy Davis Jr. for being with us on the podcast this week as well. And thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.